Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 35. That's our reading. Our, our study will be through the rest of the chapter. But let's read together Acts chapter 9, verse 32 and following, down through verse 35. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ, heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us the privilege and the opportunity to study your word today. May you anoint and bless us with your spirit. So that we, Lord God, would receive clearly your wisdom and your instruction. Our hearts today go out to uh, Irene and Michelle and Adriana. The loss of a father and a husband. We thank you, Lord God, that Hinato received you as his Lord and Savior. And today is in, in your arms and in your care. We pray, Father, though, for this family at this time of loss and, and in their grief and in their mourning, we come alongside of them. We ask, Father, that you, Lord God, would lift them, comfort them, and strengthen them through this time. And now, Lord God, we, we pray as we look at your word and consider, Father, the, the power of your, of your might to heal and to strengthen Lord, uh, may that be realized today, not only by the Muniz family, but by every family here represented. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Y'all may be seated. (coughs) When we last saw Peter in the book of Acts, he was returning from Samaria to Jerusalem with John after having checked out what had happened in Samaria through the ministry of Philip and after praying with the Samaritans to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, uh, in Acts 8 verse 25, it tells us, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And a couple of things are, are, are important to note at this point in time is that as they went through the, the, uh, the region of Samaria, uh, there wasn't any, any longer in them this, this desire to stay away from the people, but in fact, they began to open their hearts to the Samaritans, whereas before they didn't have that very heart for, for these uh, Gentiles as, as uh, an unclean people as they would have called them at one time. So that opened up. But another important thing to note is that as we learned last time, Saul of Tarsus, now a believer in, and follower, a believer in and follower of Jesus, would visit with Peter in Jerusalem. And we made note of that last time. But in Galatians 1 verse 18, Paul wrote that then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. 
and remained with him 15 days. So there is that necessity to see that Peter returns to Jerusalem so that within that time period, that time frame between the time of Saul's conversion and, and three years later that he had already met with Peter. So we know then that Peter does return to Jerusalem. But certain things were changing now. Certain things were changing in regard to the apostles in Jerusalem. Because at one point they were staying put in Jerusalem while those needing ministry would come uh, from near and far to them. And uh, Acts 5, just as a point of review, back in Acts 5 verse 16, we're told that a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and and they were all healed. But the, the point is that they were bringing them to Jerusalem, bringing them to the apostles. But this pattern was now making a major shift. And in Acts 9 verse 32, which is the beginning of our text today, it says, Now it came to pass... As Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And this particular verse makes it clear that he came down, which means he came from Jerusalem. So he had come back to Jerusalem. Now he comes down from Jerusalem, uh, going northwest to uh, this region called Sharon, uh, a plain, the, the plains between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean coast. And he comes to this town in Lydda. And uh, Lydda was a small town about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem in the area uh, of, of the present city of Lod, on the road leading to the port city of Joppa. And so Peter began what we can consider a traveling ministry by visiting with the believers in Lydda. <clears throat> now, understand that in this particular region was, was uh, the fruits of the ministry of Philip. Because back in Acts 8 verse 40, we are told that Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Well, Lydda would have been one of those cities along uh, the way. So uh, the saints that would have been found in Lydda more than likely were those that came to Christ through the ministry of Philip. Now, I want to interject something here and I want to suggest something to you that meeting with Saul of Tarsus, that meeting between Saul and Paul, or I should say Saul and Peter, that the meeting with Saul of Tarsus may have indeed stirred the heart of Peter to this itinerant type of ministry along with the moving and the prodding of the Holy Spirit, of course. But I suggest this for a certain reason. It is something that can affect us today in our own ministry, the kind of ministry that that we, we hope that God would give us. In fact, every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ should have this particular ministry. But it begins with a stirring in the heart. And stirring and shaking was necessary in biblical times. It was something that was understood in those times, especially with things like wine. Which if left too long in the fermentation process, the sediment would settle to the bottom and, and it would sour the wine. If that wine wasn't stirred on a regular type of a basis, then the wine would turn bad, it would turn sour. And so it needed to be stirred up, and it needed to be poured out. Now those are two very interesting statements, because those are statements that we find used for the spiritual life of Christians. To be stirred up, to be poured out. Paul used them, and certainly Peter used them as well. So think about that, that if in in, in the the real world of 
winemaking, as it were. It needed to be stirred and poured out from time to time to assure good aging. Well, what about the Christian life? How similar to the Christian life that thought is. And I want you to consider, if you will, a statement made in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Because I want us to keep in mind this issue of the stirring of the heart of Peter. It says in verse 24, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. In order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, this is, this is a very important aspect of, of, of the church life today, that we need to daily stir up love and good works. We need to daily stir up these love and good works amongst brethren in the church, not forsaking ourselves uh, together, not forsaking the time, for example, today when we come together in the name of Jesus Christ to worship the Lord, to, to honor Him, to bless Him, to learn from Him as we study the Word. That's the manner of some. I hope that's not your manner. I hope your manner is that you want to be with God's people all the time, worshiping the Lord, praising the Lord, and learning from the Lord. That is the manner of the church, and that is the way it needs to be as we see the day approaching. What day is that? The day of Christ's return. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be studying, or I should say, we're going to be celebrating the the, the birth of Jesus Christ, and and, and certainly the the first coming of the Lord, the incarnation of, of, of Christ and all. Uh, and, and there was a promise given to us that He was going to come. But there was another promise, and Jesus said, I'm going to come again. His day is approaching. And all the more, we should be stirring up one another in love and good works. Notice, exhorting one another. And the word exhorting here is not just a word that that means to warn. It also means to encourage. I hope and pray that every week through the study of God's word that we're encouraging you to love Jesus and to love one another. I hope that we're encouraging you to serve the Lord with a, with, a, with a whole heart. That is an encouragement. We're not here to beat you. You know, the Lord never said, beat the sheep. He said, feed the sheep. We want to feed you. God's Word, this is what we do. We open the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line upon line, precept upon precept. Why? Because the day is approaching. We want you to remember that. Jesus is coming. And He promised it, and we ought to believe that. So you see the need to stir up? Peter used this imagery of stirring up in his own letters. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12-14, through 14, and I've added a, these verses around this statement because I want you to see the importance of stirring up. And what it does and what, what it's supposed to do for us. For example, verse 12, it says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, in other words, in his body, to stir you up by reminding you. So there is this necessity of, of, of reminding by stirring. To remind you of the truths of the Bible. To remind you of the truths of, of the Christian life. He says, uh, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So soon Peter was going to uh, pass from this life. But he wanted to, until that day, to stir up by reminder the things that need to be known about Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in verses 1 and 2, he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. 
that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So what you receive from the prophets and what you receive from us, which is uh, the, uh, the word given to us by Jesus, to you. To take hold of that, I stir these things up, I stir your minds up by reminder, by way of reminder. So Peter understood this issue of stirring up, which means that he had to be stirred up too. We can't be saying that, you know, we're, uh, you know we need you to be stirred up if we haven't been stirred up first. God stirs us up first to, to be able to say, this is what you need to hear. This is what you need to remember in the Christian life. So with that in mind, this would have been one reason for this particular visit. Our fellowship with one another should prompt a desire to stir up one another spiritually. And in doing so, each person should come away desiring to love and serve the Lord and each other more. And what an encouragement it must have been for the saints in Lydda, you see, to have received a visit from the Apostle Peter. What a glorious thing that must have been for them. Wow, Peter's coming. Peter's here. They probably didn't know he was coming, but he said, oh, Peter's here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus, one who touched Jesus, one who knew Jesus. He's come here to encourage us. See, they weren't sitting in, they weren't sitting in Jerusalem anymore, just kind of waiting for people to come to them. Now they were going out. There had to have been a stirring. The Holy Spirit, a conversation with Saul. Something that says we need to let people know that Jesus is alive. In Acts 9, verse 33. Peter comes to Lydda, stirred in his heart to serve the Lord. And he says, there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. An interesting statement. There he found a certain man. You know, he came to encourage the saints, but there was a certain man there. Now, understand this. It is important to note that opportunities for God's miraculous power will always make themselves known as we go about, as Peter did. We're stirred in the heart to go serve the Lord. Guess what? Opportunities will abound. And here was an opportunity. He didn't go in particular to just do this, but there he was. He found a certain man, it says. So wherever we go, whatever we do, whether casually or formally, whether nearby or far from home, we have to remember that the Lord's power is always going to be there. The Lord's power to heal, the Lord's power to touch, the Lord's power to save. All of these things are going to be there when we go and we meet people for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all of us who love Jesus. The power goes with us because He said, I'll be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you. You see the opportunity now. Peter goes to encourage the saints, but he finds a certain man. Well, that's an interesting thing. Peter found a certain man named Aeneas, a man with great need, and on a particular level, with no medical hope for this ailment. Eight years he'd been bedridden. Wasn't going to get any better. They didn't have medical technology then that would have helped him. So in fact, anybody had been in bed that long for eight years, whatever the ailment must have been, it was certain not to get any better. Probably worse. So you see the situation. And I mentioned that he was a certain man, which gives indication that he was probably not a believer. Because he's not called a disciple, as we will find a certain woman in the next passage, which we'll look at in just a moment. Her name was Dorcas, and we realize that she was called a disciple. 
So here, this man is not called a disciple, he's just called a certain man named Aeneas. So it gives us indication that he's probably not a believer, that he was probably somebody that came there to Lydda as an invitation, or maybe some men brought him because they heard that Peter was coming. You see, we're given opportunities. I just mentioned it in in our announcements that in the next couple of weeks we're going to have a musical, Christmas musical. And and then after that we're going to have our our, uh, uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service. And we always encourage you, bring friends, bring family, bring people who, you know, certainly they, they enjoy the holidays, but bring them so that they can hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why Jesus came. Why Jesus came to this earth. Why He was born. What an opportunity to tell, tell somebody. Maybe you're going to bring somebody that's maybe not bedridden for eight years physically, but maybe bedridden all their lives because they're without Jesus. And they seem in their life to be without hope. What an opportunity to bring them to hear the gospel. Because it isn't any of us. It's what Jesus Christ is and who He is and what He does and what He can do in a life. If we've experienced that, should we not want that for everyone else that we know is without hope in this world? What an opportunity, you see. So here he was, brought maybe by a friend or even a family member of a believer there. But one thing for sure, he needed what Peter had to offer him. He needed what Peter had to offer him. Look at verses 34 and 35. Because immediately he finds this man, and then it says, Peter said to him, Aeneas... Jesus the Christ heals you. That's all he says. Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And and then he rose immediately. And Aeneas gets up. He hadn't gotten up in eight years. And immediately he got up. And so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now there are two things that are evident in verse 34. Peter had the gift of healing. That is certainly evident, as had been seen previously with a beggar at the gate of the temple, if you remember back in chapter 3. And most importantly, Peter identified who was doing the healing. So the first important thing is, Peter certainly had the gift of healing. God used him like that before. But the important thing, even the greater thing, is that Peter identifies who was doing the healing. He said, Jesus the Christ heals you. And I can tell you that this isn't being done, you know, by Peter, like those today who are, you know, are going out with all these healing ministries on TV and, you know, going all over the place, you know, wearing white suits and making, you know, looking as if, you know, not wanting to say anything and, and tell them, you know, because they'll, they'll always say, well, this Jesus is Jesus. But you, you can tell it's really them getting all the acclaim here. Folks, Peter didn't act that way. You know, Peter didn't jump and, you know, wave a coat around and do anything like that. You know what he did? He said, Jesus, the Christ heals you. And immediately, he says, arise. And, and, and the man immediately got up. It was Jesus who healed him. Peter points that out. Peter was the instrument who relied completely and totally on the power of Jesus Christ. That's how the gift of healing works. He relied totally upon Jesus because Jesus is the healer. The acknowledgement of Jesus' power and healing remained consistent in the Peter's life. You go back to Acts chapter 3, verse 6, when Peter is going into the temple, Peter and John are going into the temple, and Peter said to him, Silver and gold I do not have, to that man at the gate called Beautiful, that was begging alms. 
And Peter said to him, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus, not in my name or not in my power, but in Jesus' name, which means in His authority, in His power, rise up and walk. Later on in verse 16 of the same chapter, as, as, he's, as, as people are wondering, how did this happen? How, how did you do this? Peter says in verse 16, And his name, speaking of Jesus' name, And his name through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So again, he doesn't give any cre- uh, credit to himself. He gives it all to Jesus in the name of Jesus. And then when he's now uh, uh, confronted about this by the, by the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4, he says to them, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. <laughs> Never once does he take credit for what, he, for what Jesus did. Jesus of Nazareth, the name of Jesus, in the authority of Jesus, in the power of Jesus' name, this man stands before you. It is Jesus who healed him. And he says to Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. You see, we are to be doing all that we do. Whatever it is, we are to be doing it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is. We may not have the gift of healing. We may have many other gifts. There are so many other gifts mentioned in the scriptures. Maybe you have the gift of helps. Maybe you have the gift of hospitality. Whatever that gift may be, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, he said, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I, th- I, I truly believe, I honestly believe that the apostles who went about doing the things that Jesus uh, wanted them to do as, as, as His instruments, I believe that every time something happened, they always bowed in thanksgiving to the Lord. They just bowed in thanksgiving because it wasn't them. The amazing thing is people are seeing this and they're turning to the Lord as the text tells us here. But you bow, you get away from receiving the attention, from receiving the glory, because people look at you and they say, oh, you're the one. No, Jesus is the one. The attention isn't to be on us. The humility, the bowing down to the Lord and saying, He is the healer. Give thanks to the Lord. That is what we are to do when we do whatever we do in word or in deed. We are to give Him the glory. We are to give Him the thanks. So Peter, he commands Aeneas then. To rise and to make his bed. That's in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. He commands, he commands Aeneas to rise and make his bed, which means that he was now enabled to do what he could not do for eight years. To take up his bed. Now, what Peter did say was, Arise and make your bed. Does it sound like the command you parents give your kids every day? You're walking by the you know, hall, you look inside your kid's room and you go, oh, Make your bed! That's not the idea here. <laughs> it wasn't make your bed, it was take your bed. To make the bed meant to take it up. Furnish it. But to take it up and go. Couldn't do that if he was lying on it. Couldn't do it if he was hurting on it. 
Now he's not hurting anymore. He's, a, a, he's, 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 he's healed. He's up. He says, make your bed. Take it. Go. How many times have we seen in the scriptures, Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. Take up your bed and walk. The walking is walk with me now. I've healed you. I've done this to you. You see, the great thing is that he arose immediately. And this, and this healing was the occasion for many to come to faith in Christ Jesus. Because they saw him and they turned to the Lord. They saw him turn to the Lord. What does it take sometimes for people to turn to the Lord? See, nowadays we don't see that happen all that much. But people are still hurting. People are still uh, bedridden. And, and I say that in a spiritual sense. They're down, they're hurting, they're in pain. The Lord is saying in essence to them, rise up and walk. Walk with me. We look at people today that, you know, if we knew them a few years ago and we knew that they were you know, far from the Lord, we said, man, that person will never come to Jesus. When they come to Jesus, what are you going to say? How many, how many people have actually come to the Lord because they looked at somebody who was pretty wicked in their life but that person is now a believer are people turning to the Lord they're going I can't believe it of course you can because you will not believe but do we believe do we believe in that power to turn the hearts of men in that time that's what it took they saw him and turned the Lord. And that, that turned to the Lord. That, that uh, little phrase, "turned to the Lord," is used two other times in the book of Acts. And I want you to look at them in Acts eleven, verse twenty-one. It says, "The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord." They believed and turned. They saw, they trusted, they believed, and they turned, turning away from where we were going, turning toward the Lord, where we should go. That's repentance. Re- Repenting from where we're going, where we're going, turning to the Lord. That's where we're to be headed. Turning to the Lord. Acts 15 verse 19 says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. They're turning to the Lord. You see, we're going our own way. We're going our own path in this life until someone shares with us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we learn and we, our eyes are open and we turn from where we were going to the Lord you see every path every path that is not going to the Lord is going in some other direction everyone north, south, east, west and everything in between but when the, the light of the glory of Christ opens our eyes we turn to the Lord we're not going the same way that we were going before And so that's an important thing, that they saw him and turned to the Lord. They turned away from where they were, and now they're going to Jesus. And the Lord used that miracle to add to the church in Lydda, and throughout the coastal plains of Sharon, or Sharon, which indicates how the gospel was, was was beginning to attract a wider audience. More and more people were hearing of these great things that were happening. And let me just say that we need to stir up the gifts. We need to stir up the gifts that we have been given and exercise them for the glory of Christ as Peter did that day. He's had his gifts stirred up. And he came and he found a certain man that was bedridden for eight years. 
His gift was stirred up. And He spoke with that authority. Jesus the Christ heals you. The gift is stirred up. He could have sat quiet. He could have gone there just to encourage the people and that's, that would have been fine. But the Lord prompted him. Stirred the gift. We all have gifts if we know Jesus. He's given us all gifts. He's given us all talents. He's given us all things that we can use for Him and for His glory and for the kingdom of God. Are we using them? I think of Timothy. Timothy was, was a young man when, when Paul sends him out to Ephesus. And in the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, he encourages him about leadership and he encourages about how he is to, uh, how he is to lead that church. But at the end of Paul's life, he writes him a second letter. By this time, uh, uh, Timothy has gone through a a rough time of the pastor. A rough time in in leading this particular church. And he certainly had many hours of, of, of discouragement, despair in the ministry. To the extent that the Apostle Paul writes him and tells him immediately in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Stir up the gift, you see. Don't let it settle. Don't let it get stagnant in your life. Stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Well, amen, but let's do it, no? Let's believe it. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Timothy had sunk to a place where he began to fear. He began to despair. It's easy to do in the ministry sometimes if we take our eyes off the Lord and think that we're the ones that are responsible. Give him a spirit of power and of love. And we can't separate these. You know, there's people that think they have the power, but they don't have a whole lot of love. And they probably no sound mind either. If you know what I mean. And you can't just go about saying, well, I just love everybody, but there's no power behind that. Or I'm pretty smart, and I, you know, I got my mind settled, but where's the power? Where's the love? It's all together. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. Stir up the gift then. Stir it up in you. He wanted to encourage him. Don't give up hope. The Lord's with you. Never leaves you. The gift is there, but you've got to stir it up. The picture there, by the way, was, was the stirring up was not only about a, a, an issue of wine. You know what the issue was? The issue was there, there was a fire that was burning out. If you've ever seen a charcoal fire, you know, when, 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 when it starts to die out, it starts to turn white on the outside. Still warm inside, but it's not hot. And the embers are dying. And the only way to get that fire to start up again is that you've got to stir those coals up. You take a stick and you start stirring it up. You put some more wood on there. And the more you stir it up, that fire starts getting that oxygen. And that oxygen starts building up that fire. And what happens? It ignites again. And he says, stir up the gift that is in you. And while Peter was in Lydda, another need arose. In the Mediterranean coastal town of Joppa which is modern-day Jaffa, Tel Aviv. Those who went to Israel know what I'm talking about. We were there in Jaffa and Tel Aviv. and We heard the story of Peter coming from Lydda to, to Jaffa or to Joppa. In verse 36, it says, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, 
which is translated Dorcas, Tabitha being the Hebrew, Dorcas being Greek. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. That's kind of matter of fact, isn't it? Well, she became sick and died. That's a a good beginning for a good story coming up. She became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. They treated her body with respect and dignity as was the Jewish custom. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And then Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the windows, uh, I'm sorry, all the windows, all the widows, I'm sorry. I don't know how that end got in there. And all the widows, <laughs> I was going to say all the wi- windows were closed. And, uh, so we get a little air in here. <laughs> sorry about that. My text is a little tiny here. So, you know. And all the widows, let's get that other picture out of our mind. And all the widows stood by him weeping. Showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Now what do you get from this? A well-beloved woman and follower of Christ, whose names in Greek and Aramaic both mean deer or gazelle, uh, which refer to the gracefulness of that particular animal. She became sick and she died. Now here was a person that was known for her help. To the poor. One who was full of good works, it says, and charitable deeds which she did. You see, these last three words really should remind us that there are a lot of believers who talk about what they would like to do or what they intend to do in serving the Lord, especially in the holiday season which we are now in. But Dorcas reminds us that she did things. D-I-D. She did things. She just didn't talk about them. She just didn't plan them. She just didn't pray about them only. She did them. Now think about your life as a believer today. Oftentimes we're like that person who talks about things. You know, I I heard that there's a real big need over there. and uh, You know, that's, wow, that's a big need. (laughs) You know, uh, maybe we should do something about it. Uh, Well, let's talk a little bit more. Let's plan something. Okay, so we talk about things and and maybe we develop some kind of a plan. Oh, maybe on a certain given day, well, I'll kind of gather some things together. These people really need some help. We'll, we'll, We'll have a plan. Okay, but you know, before we do anything, let's pray about it. Right? And we do that. And it's okay to pray. But sometimes we just pray and we pray. Well, uh, uh, did you do anything yet? No, we're still praying. And, and it reminds me of what? It reminds me, and we'll get to this in a moment, but it reminds me of that Charlie Brown co- comic strip, you know, uh, uh, years ago. Uh, Charles Schultz used this right straight out of the Bible. Charlie Brown is going to Snoopy. Snoopy is freezing cold. It's snowing outside. He says, be warm and be filled. But he doesn't say, he just says it and goes. You see the understanding here? She didn't just talk about these things. She didn't just plan it. She didn't just pray about it. You know what she did? She made clothes. 
for people who needed clothes. You see, the poor, one thing about the poor in those days, when they were really poor, they didn't have even clothes. There were a lot of naked people on the streets. They didn't have anything. It's amazing that, you know, the people we see today, they have clothes, they have backpacks, they got all kinds of stuff. In those days, they had nothing. And people treated them just like dirt. That's why this person was so precious. This is why the people, especially the women, wept. And they, they were showing off her tunics and garments. She had probably just made these things and then she died. And they were, oh, they just made, she just made these for the poor. And, and this may very well be why they wanted Peter to come. Give us words of comfort. Give us words of encouragement. This person who had such a beautiful heart has died. You know, we're not told that they wanted him to raise her from the dead, nor, nor do we see Peter arriving as if this were his custom. That wasn't, you know, we don't see that that was his custom, to go places if a person dies. Well, let me get there, I'll be there, because I, you know, I can raise him from the dead. That's not his custom. But what we do know is that the Jews had a great respect for the dead. They treated their remains with dignity and, and they would bury them with solemn regard. And so this was already being set up and having an apostle of Jesus as notable as Peter to offer words of comfort and hope, it may have been another reason why they sent for him. Nevertheless, what happened? Look at verse 40. But Peter put them all out. He comes, and I'm sure he didn't do that with a, with a mean, uh, in a mean way. He just wants them out of the room. He puts them out, it says. And he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known throughout all Joppa and, and many believed on the Lord. What was Peter doing? Peter was responding to the direct leading of the Holy Spirit, which is more than I can say about those people who try to raise people from caskets today or even, you know, from, from hospital beds when they're dying. They say, oh, we got our pastor, we got our, you know, our, our preacher, we got our evangelist or whatever. He's come, he's going to pray. Well, let's pray, you know, this person's dead, but he's going to raise him from the dead. No, it doesn't happen, does it? I haven't seen it in the paper. That'd, that'd be a notable thing, wouldn't it, if somebody rose risen from the dead? Be notable. I don't see it. They go about, you know, with this, this arrow, you know, that they have this power, you know. But what did Peter do? He does it because the Holy Spirit directs him. But his actions, more than anything, his actions were also modeled on what his master said and did at the raising of Jairus' daughter. Let's look in comparison, Mark chapter 5, and look at verses 39 through 42. When Jesus came in, he said to them, for they called him because of this person, Jairus' daughter. He says, why make this commotion and weep, he says? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, ah, sound familiar? What did Peter do? Put them outside. That's what Jesus did. He put them all outside. He took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand. Sound familiar? And he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. Talitha Kumi. Interesting 
But Peter said, Tabitha, Kumi. Tabitha, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. You know, Peter, we're told, knelt down and prayed. I find this to be the image that sticks to my mind the most. He knelt down and prayed. Have you ever wondered what one says in a prayer that has power to raise the dead? Have you ever wondered what that prayer was like? Ah, I wish I could hear that. And as Jesus spoke to the young child, Peter spoke to Tabitha to rise. What joy must have filled his soul. I'm just talking about Peter. What joy must have filled his soul when the eyelids of this woman began to quiver? (laughs) And then the eyes opened and the body warmed with life. And she gazed at the extended hand of the apostle and took it and sat up alive. What, what emotions flooded his heart. But then what emotions flooded the hearts of those in the other room when Peter presented Tabitha or Dorcas alive to them. Who could ever take credit for this kind of miracle without giving it all to the Lord Jesus Christ? Who could ever say, look what I did. Peter knelt down and prayed. Lord, do you want this person to rise? It's your power. Let him rise. And she did. By the way, it has to be noted that in raising Dorcas from the dead, she would return to a mortal life, face suffering and death all over again. Just like Lazarus, if you remember. You know, I'm not sure I want that for me. I die, don't come and pray. I see Jesus, man. Hey. I'm where I want to be. In the arms of the Lord. Leaving the presence of the Father to return to earth. Oh. But remember, why does he, you see, that makes, makes you wonder, why are they doing that? Oh, you know, rise from, hey, if the guy's a believer, let him go home to be with the Lord. Understand something. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? What did those people ask for that? Because it's a selfish thing. We don't want to lose anybody. Right? You know, we grew up thinking our parents will never die. And then when they die, what happens? I jump in, oh Lord, why did you take them? But well, why did she receive life again? Re- remember that our prayers for others have their best interest in mind and not our own. There still had to be a reason for Dorcas to be raised from the dead. I mean, she was back in fellowship with the widows who sorrowed deeply at her death and probably back to sowing for them. There she was. Sewing. Something to remember about Dorcas is that, you know, she would have eternal life because of her life in Jesus. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 
The Lord brought her back for a reason. That was her gift. That was her talent. That was her calling. In essence, she was stirred up. Her gifts were stirred up so that the church would be built up. And so the greater effect was upon the church. For we see in verse 42, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. The church was edified by this person's life being brought back. The church was once again edified, multiplied, encouraged. Once again, we see the selective and spiritual nature of miracles in the book of Acts. Because the purpose was never the enhancement and enrichment of the evangelist, but always the conversion of men and women, young and old alike. Believers are also built up in their love and faith through all of this, which are, by the way, words of action. Love and faith are words of action, as we saw last time with Barnabas towards Saul. So that Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 13, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love, faith or action words, you see. James writes in James 2, verses 14 through 17, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister or Snoopy is naked and destitute of daily food? And one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? I'm sorry, did anybody hear Snoopy? What does it profit, it says? This also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Love and faith are action words. And this was the example of Tabitha to the church. Love and faith builds up the church. As for Peter, there's no big, uh, you know, starting of some kind of a great miracle healing ministry now. What does Peter do? He finds lodging now there in Joppa. In an interesting place. We're told in verse 43. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. It's interesting that Simon the tanner would have been considered unclean because he worked routinely with dead animals. That's what a tanner did. A tanner worked with skins. Well, you had to get skins off of dead animals. Well, what did that have, what, you know, what, what, what did that mean to Simon? Well, he was considered unclean. He had to live 75 feet outside of the city walls, as was their custom. And yet Peter chose to stay with him. Does this say something about Peter's heart now changing? He still has to go through another struggle, but nonetheless, things are changing in Peter. And since Peter at this point is less concerned about traditions and ceremonial law than he was before, it lays the groundwork for us uh, for what the Lord is going to do in and through Peter in the next chapter. So this is just kind of a, you know, a transitional verse you know, for what we're going to see next. So that's where we're going to see Peter. But I pray that the Lord has stirred us all today. I pray the Lord has stirred us all up to love and faith and service and, and using the gifts that He's given us. But today you might not be a believer. Maybe you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today. What you are then is an Aeneas before he was healed. You're unable to walk with God. 
My encouragement to you is that if you hear the word of the Lord and you receive it, you will be enabled to do what you cannot do in yourself and in your, in your own power, which is to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ. I urge you to turn from your sins in repentance. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. To every one of you who is a believer, as you take the bread and the cup this morning, and I encourage all of you, whoever you are, take the cup and the bread this morning. But I encourage you, if you take that, I want one prayer in your heart to say, Lord, stir my gifts up. Stir me up. Don't let me get stagnant. Remind me, Lord. Remind me this day, as we see the day of Jesus Christ approaching, that we need to stir up love and good works in others. Let me be an encouragement to those who I worship with here today. Let me not close myself off, you know, put a bubble around me. Let me live for one another. Let me live for each other. Let me live for you in service to them and in service to you. Let that be your prayer today.